If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. We'll love to pass a Bible out. Um, if you turn your bulletins on the back, you'll see uh, you can write notes. So, so feel free to do that. If you need a pen or pencil, again, you can raise your hand. We'll hand those to you as well. So that'd be awesome. Um, as you guys know, uh, we begin we begin uh, in Galatians, seeing the serious tenor of it, watching uh, watching how. Paul doesn't waste any time to provide a rebuke. There's no encouragement, unlike all of his other epistles. Uh, it seems that the intentionality and the intensity of his message uh, was, is mostly because of false doctrine. And so and that was leading toward legalism, specifically uh, with people who were Jews saying that individuals had to, um, have, had to model uh, different cultural venues in order to say that they were actually real believers. So he gets very upset. Uh, he encourages them that there's one gospel, that basically what we're about right now and what he was about then and what we should always be about is that everything's about Jesus, uh, that the gospel is about Jesus, it's always been about Jesus, and always will be about Jesus, and that we, don't, we add to Jesus and what he has done and what he is doing, um, we have distorted uh, the truth of God's word, and we've distorted the truth of, what, of redemptive history. Uh, he continues on. In, in chapter 2, um, by, by then saying, so I'm sorry, he continues on to the end of chapter 1, and he says, hey, look, uh, I'm saying this stuff, but guys, I'm not just making this stuff up. I got this gospel from Jesus himself. I had this whole Damascus Road experience where I was going to get more Christians killed, and all of a sudden Jesus says, you're doing the wrong thing. Um, I become a Christian. I begin to love Jesus, and I begin to immediately proclaim him. And so this gospel was not made up, but it's from the king of kings himself. Uh, he begins, he teaches the gospel immediately. He goes off to Arabia for three years. He also has this missionary journey for 14 years. And then all, all the while, uh, we begin to get some haters. And people start saying, hey, no, you need to, you know, you, you're sort of wishy-washy. You know, you're saying Jewish stuff sometimes, and you're saying Gentile stuff other times. Hey, we need to put some more rules on these Gentiles. That would be all of us unless you're a Jewish person here. That was like Gentiles and Jews and everybody else. Um, and, and, Paul, and, and so Paul says, well, okay, well, let me just be humble. So he goes to the leadership and he says, hey, I've been, you know, I've been doing this for a while. And I'm, you know, I was a Pharisee, which is only a few thousand Pharisees in all the history of Israel. So I, I was a man as a Jew. And now I've been, by God's grace, um, by God's grace, been called to be an apostle to uh, the Gentiles or I've been preaching. And I just want to make sure this stuff is right. So he humbles himself before the Lord. Well, I'm sorry, before the Lord and before leaders, which is what our big tenor was last week, is that he takes himself, this is Paul, the man, and he humbles himself before these leaders and says, I just want to make sure that what I'm saying is not in vain. So check out what I'm saying. Is this kind of tight? He didn't say it like that. But, but that's, that's a tenor. He's like, is this the gospel? And, and they say, you know what? Um, this is the gospel. We give you the right hand of fellowship, and guess what? We realize that you're ministering cross-culturally. We're ministering to the Jews. You're ministering to the Gentiles, and so there's going to be a, a, a certain tenor to that. That's okay. Uh, go and be blessed. And then before he leaves, they say, hey, Paul, by the way, right now, Gentiles are doing okay. The Jews are struggling. Uh, they had the diaspora. That means that everybody was scattered, and uh, there was a famine going on in the time, and the Jews were really struggling. And he says, hey, while you're going out proclaiming the gospel, just don't forget the poor. So, by the way, now, you know, we, we, we're serving in poverty here, and I would love to take that verse and just tell you that's how serious it is about the gospel. Out of all the things he could have said, he says, don't forget the poor. He does do that, but I don't think the tenor of this text is that 
even though I would tell you that the Bible <laughs> makes it really clear that the poor, if, for you to be ministering and saying, I'm going to serve Jesus, and you don't serve the marginalized or those who are hurting, I think you've missed a huge part of, of retelling Jesus' story. But in this text here, there was actually a circumstantial, occasional reason why he said that, and that was because actually Jewish people were poor, and he wanted to make sure they didn't forget these people who were starving. Okay, um, So that's toward, uh, that's toward the... Uh, first, that was the last verse in chapter, uh, chapter 10, and now we enter into verse 11 where we are now. So, verse 11 of chapter 2. So now, family, remember what, what, what we said, we talked about the whole time um, in, in, in Galatians 2, and that was this sense of, like, Paul being a man of humility. And remember we said, okay, like, so you can have, you know, we have these different aspects. We talked about... Uh, uh, being, uh, have syncretism, you have people who add to the gospel, and you have sectarians who have, like, but they, this is what we think our doctrinal beliefs are, and we don't, we don't leave out that tent, right? And it seems like there's this, there's this kind of, like, contextual balance uh, that God wants us to have. We, we stay true to the gospel, but not in arrogance, but we, chase, we stay true to the gospel with courage and humility. That was a tenor last week. We see Paul model it. It's unbelievable. I think we were all encouraged by God's scriptures to see him do that. But look at what happens in verse 11. Uh, if, you are, if you have questions, again, that's not a faux pas. We, are, we want people to be educated. We want us to learn what the gospel is about, what Jesus is saying, and apply it to our lives. So please don't think, oh, I have a question. I can't ask, ask it. Please ask it because we want to be informed with God's truth here, just to let you know if you knew. So look what he says in verse um, 11. It says, when Peter came to Antioch, right, basically the rock, you know, don't get scared because Catholics think if you say it's the rock, then you think Peter was the first pope and all the popes um, are lineage from him. It's not true. You can still say Peter's a rock. It's totally fair. In Matthew 16, that's just the reality. He calls him a rock. We see him basically be the leader of the first century church. It's all fair. He's still not the pope. He's still not infallible. He's still foul, but he was a rock. God used him to help build uh, the first century church. You got this leader, and look what it says. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. What happened? We were just talking about Paul being this humble, courageous guy who submits his doctrine to the leaders. And then we see in the next verse, obviously I would tell you that this is right after, this is after that meeting, uh, that Peter gets rebuked by Paul. You see that? Let me read verse 12 real quick. It says, Before certain men, he tells us why. Well, why do you do this, Paul? Before certain men came from James, uh, he, used to, um, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Wait a minute. So, he, so he's humble. He submits his teachings to Peter and the rest of these guys. And the next verse... He says, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Y'all like, I think that's, a, that's the most beautiful display. I, again, the, the meaning of the text here is to show how serious he is of the gospel. But the implication here, I don't want us to miss this. Look how balanced Paul is. We see humility. And then right after humility, with the humility, we see great courage. The same people he was willing to submit the gospel to, the truth of God, when he sees them breaking the truth of God, he rebukes them. This is the leader of the first century church that he's saying this to. 
This is like this is like the head guy. He says that I oppose him to his face. What I love about this is we talked about last week that some of us, we, we have such an arrogance that, you know, I say how people come in here and they, they, they don't really want to learn about God because they think they know it all already. And so they come here just basically to critique. Right. So some of us can have an arrogance, a veneer of arrogance. And we're here and we're going, I just want to wait until you get something wrong versus passionate about passionate about just learning about Jesus and fellowshipping together. Knowing, guess what? I'm going to get stuff wrong and let's just get it wrong together and then get it right together and let's do life together. Right? We can have an air of, of, of arrogance where we can't put ourselves nor our teaching before people because we're too arrogant. And then there's some of us who are kind of wimpy, right? So you your 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 doctrine and who you are changes every week because you're trying to please people. So you're kind of wimpy. So you have, you have no conviction. As soon as someone tells you something else because you want to make sure that you can influence friends and win people, you just kind of, you know, you go along based on whatever the popular culture is. Right? But it seems here that Paul, what he's modeling is that he's willing, he doesn't care about what people think. He has these individuals who are dogging him because he's a little too Gentile, because he doesn't really care about the circumcision. You would think then naturally he would run toward the Jews and say, well, at least I got y'all. But what he does, he then, he then rebukes the Jew of Jew. Right? He rebukes the Jewish, the most Jewish Christian there, sort of isolating himself in the eyes of the world. But what I love about it is we see a man who's willing to not care about what people think and only care about honoring God. That the gospel, the gospel was a treasure, and no matter what the cost, he was going to make sure that the gospel stayed pure. How about us? Will you put yourself in harm's way like that? Will we do that as a body? Will that be our culture? Will we'll stand up no matter what people think about you, or you're too mean, or you're too hard? How many of us, and I love, it's not a personality thing. Notice this. This can't be a personality issue because he kind of did both. Either he's the most balanced man in all of history, or here's a guy who's just operating out of courage and saying, I'm not on anybody's side but the Lord's. Operating out of courage. I say that because my personality, right, I'm, I'm more into rebuking cats, right? I, I can easily... Like, tell you what's true. Like, the Lord has given me a prophetic speech. I think to me that's one of my giftings to be more prophetic. And it's tell you the truth. And I have to, I have to try and, 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 be, and like be very intentional about like just super compassion and not, and not letting my words just be really clear. And some of you guys are really compassionate. Right? So I have a problem because I have to make sure that, that make sure I'm loving people or that perceive they're being loved versus me just being blunt. Some of us are really kind, and you're so kind that you won't speak up for the truth because you think it might hurt someone. And so you excuse yourself, and what we both do on both sides of the camp is we begin to operate our personality and out of our worldly wisdom, and we say, well, here's, why I, here's how I should do this because this will get this certain output, and here's why I shouldn't or should do this because this will get a certain output, where it seems like what the Lord is showing just through model here just through model, is that we're called to stand up for truth and be humble all at the same time. Consistently. And that this is not a one-time thing, a 40-time thing, but it is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day way of life that you and I cannot 
Family, I'm just I'm asking all of us, and I'm asking you to hold me accountable. Let's not hide behind our natural wirings. Let's learn and be aggressive and passionate about choosing to be led and filled with the Holy Spirit and do what God wants us to do all the time. It opposes him to his face. Why does he oppose him? It says here you have these dietary laws, right? I mean, can you imagine this? So they're sitting out, and Peter's hanging, you know, they're eating a ham sandwich, right? Kicking it. He ain't supposed to be no pig. That's a Jewish joke. So, um, so um, they're eating. You know, he's hanging. And all of a sudden, brothers walk up like, what you doing, Pete? And he just sort of, you know what it reminds me of? It, what I thought about, I, I literally thought about, like, our body. Because we are a diverse group. And I thought about somebody, like, if you guys know J. Mack. It's like, I mean, you know, I mean, it's like J. Mack hanging out, you know what I'm saying, with the brothers. And then, like, maybe he's in a mall somewhere, and all of a sudden he just changes and flips the script, right? He just, you know, maybe, maybe at, um, what's the, what, give me a nice mall. Somerset. He had Somerset, right? And all of a sudden, you know, J-Mac, y'all know, he's a white man, um, he's a black man trapped in a white man's body. And um, <laughs> so he's hanging, and all of a sudden, you know, the brothers, they, they come up, you know, the white folks come up, and they're like, what you doing, Jay? And all of a sudden he gets an excuse not to eat with them. Can you imagine that? That, like, that's how weird this is. Because now, now, now the difference, um, let me switch it up a little bit. The difference is if you read the scriptures, you, you realize that Peter has had this bigotry struggle for a while now. Right? He's been a bigot for a little bit. Right? Because we see, remember, in, uh, in Acts, he had the dream. And he had to have a dream, you know, and say, okay, uh, Peter, don't trip. You know, people can eat what they want to eat. That's okay. And so he struggled with this bigotry for a while. Um, so, they, so he says, look, these dietary laws, if you're going to add to the gospel based on food, based on food, imagine that, because he's releasing himself from these people. What he's really saying to these people then is that you really don't have together in Christ until you do these certain things, until you eat a certain way. Now, we think that's totally ridiculous. Oh, I do. But do we do that with people? Have you ever shunned someone because of a certain way they act or who they are? Have you ever put, put like, shackles on people because of what they do as a Christian, but it's not unbiblical? What's your dietary law? Continues on. It says, The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, was led astray. And this is powerful. So you got, you got Peter, he leaves. Uh, but then, for whatever reason, now hear this. Do you see the importance of leadership? And this is why, and this, so people, you know, we talk about transferability. And people get kind of mad. The reason why it's so important is that we want to make sure that on the nuts and bolts of the gospel, that we are all on the same page, that we're not all teaching different things. Look at this. Here's Peter. He begins to lead astray the rest of the people. So, and it says even Barnabas. 
Now, if, if, the, if, the, if, the, if the historians are right, and this, this book was initially written to southern Galatia, that means that Peter, I'm sorry, that Peter and Barnabas, I'm sorry, Paul and Barnabas, actually helped plant this body. Okay, so that means Barnabas began to actually lead the people he had led to Jesus. And that's why he even says, even Barnabas? Paul's upset. In Acts, remember they, remember they have these cats kind of split up. Do you see now why? Paul is so upset because he's going, dude, we shared our faith with these people. They came to Christ. And now you're following this nut and we're changing the gospel. Now they don't even know what to think. Do you see that? He says, even, he says, even, you, even Barnabas left. Even Barnabas was led astray because of hypocrisy. We take... We take leadership real seriously here, and we take the, the reason why discipleship is our nucleus, is our DNA, is because we want to make sure that we're on the same page, that we're teaching the, the sound doctrine of God, the people we're on the same page of the gospel, uh, that we all understand what we want to be about, what we trust the Lord for, so that when something like something like this jumps off, we as one accord can say, "What are you doing?" So transferability, just for, cl- just for clarity, is not some weird top-down thing, so that we can have. You know, control. That's not what this is about. It's really about making sure that we are all agreeing. Here's what the sound gospel is. Here's some sound teachings about the Holy Spirit, about how we walk with the Lord, about how we, we flee from lust, about position and condition, about how we renew our mind. So then when we start hearing weird stuff in the body, we can all together in a united front say, that's foul. And we can make sure that sound, pure doctrine is continuing on down the line. Do you see how important that is, family? Here's one dude who just messes up all kind of stuff because he wouldn't eat a ham sandwich. I mean, you think how simple that is, but how tragic, because it says people were led astray. So Paul, Paul rebukes the head of the first century church because he, for whatever reason, got caught up in, in fear or whatever you want to call it, and begins to, now hear this, not teach a different gospel, but display a different gospel. You don't see him teaching, but what you do see is his posture, being displ- displaying something that was clearly unbiblical. It says, when I saw in verse 14, when I saw uh, that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then you, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Again, this whole dietary law thing. I love how he says you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Now, I know that um, from what we've been sharing, uh, we had, there was a lot of questions even last week. So what I want to do toward the end, if there's some questions, we're going to, well, hopefully if we have time, we're going to fill some questions. By the way, I can't see the clock. So if there's time, I want to fill some questions here. He goes on in verse 15, he says, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Let me stop there. So why would he say that? So there's something going on uh, in history that I just want to make sure we're clear. The, the Jews identified themselves as the covenant family of God because of their ethnicity. 
Now stay with me here. So that's how they realize, okay, I am the people of God and you are not. And they recognize everybody else, and that's why they would call it, they would say Gentile sinners. Because it was really like you're either a Jew or you're a sinner. Thank you. So if a brother go too long. So they would say either you are, either you are a Jew or a Gentile sinner. And that's why he says we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why he says it like that, why did he say, why did he say, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners? It's actually a little play on a word, because then he says, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. So he, he, he uses the terminology that bigots would use, right? You got the Jews and you got the Gentile sinners, but then he says, guess what? The Jews always thought that they were justified so that you, you're ethnic and the way you knew you were down was when you obeyed the law. But he says, hey, we realize now you're not justified by obeying the law, but by Jesus Christ, which means if you're not justified by obeying the law, then I guess we are all sinners. You see what I'm playing the words there? So basically, he uses the bigotry terminology and he says, you black too. That's fine. That was a joke. But. So he says, we're all sinners. Right. He says, no, 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 we're all in the same camp to try and spark their mind to go. Why are you thinking this whole elitism? Are you kidding? It's a play on words there that he's trying to just shock, shock the reader in understanding where do we find our identity? Where does justification happen in Jesus Christ? Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, verse 16, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Um, So we, too, have put our faith in. In Christ, just that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by observing the law, because observing the law, no one will be justified. Now, when you look here, uh, it says here that the law was not bad. See, a lot of times when we talk about Christianity, we can talk about, well, I'm free from the law. okay? but when you look at Romans seven, the law is not bad. In fact, what's interesting about the law is that we, as, um, you know, we talk about you come to Christ and now you're saved and you're free. Well, what are you free to do? <laughs> well, no, no, it's, and this is kind of deep. You're, what are you free to do? Right? So you, you, you're in prison, right? You're in prison for 10 years and you're free now. And, and the way we talk about Christianity is almost like you're in shackles and now you, you leave prison and now you're free just a while out. But that's not true. When you leave a prison in the world, you're free to do what? Be a law-abiding citizen. Right? Because as soon as you're not, you, what you happen? You go back to prison. Right? You are you free, but, well, yeah, um, to do what? To actually be a respectable community human. In the same way, the beauty of the law, it's not, it's not that we are now, it's not that we are trying to accomplish the law, Right. But what happens is that God says the law is now written on our hearts. OK. And so God has already done it. He's already we, we, we he died through the law and then we die with him through the law. We'll talk about in a moment. But the law is not bad. OK. What happens, in fact, I propose to you that good Jews who actually are believers in God obeyed the law. And it was cool because it wasn't done in the spirit of legalism. To honor Jesus, to say, I'm, okay, Lord, thank you for telling me not to commit adultery. I'm actually not, committed, I'm not going to commit adultery. It's not bad. I, just want, to, I want to just take, just dispel the myth 
when we look at the law, we go, ugh. Because we don't have to, because we don't have to obey the law in, in, this, in this stingent, like, legalistic way because of Jesus. But the law is beautiful. Because it, it, it doesn't shackle us anymore. But it's written in our hearts. Check out um, Romans 7 uh, when, you have a, when you have a chance to just, uh, read through that and understand uh, what, what is being said about the law. So the reason why the law was, was foul um, in their minds, the reason why it became bad was because they did it in the spirit of legalism and in the spirit of justification that if I do these things, then I'll be justified. Versus my trust and my hope is in, is in the Lord and therefore me as this covenant community member, here's, what, here's just what I do. Here's the natural flow of what I do. You see the difference, family? Let's continue on. He says, if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. Let me just explain uh, the beginning of, of verse 17. So it sounds kind of weird. His point there is it's kind of elementary. So that's why it's weird because we, we try to make it too deep. His point there is, okay, if, if Jesus coming on the scene, right, and I'm justified by faith in Christ, and to be justified by faith in Christ, I have to admit I'm a sinner. Then you're telling me all these Jews now who were Jewish Jews are now you're calling them like the Gentile sinners. Then aren't we increasing the capacity of sinners? This simple math. You see that? See, if you had Jews and then sinners, but now you're saying all these Jews are sinners. Well, now we went from one million sinners to two million sinners. Just, just doing some. And so he's saying, well, that's more sinners. Well, how, well, how is that good? If, if, if Christ makes us all more sinners and there's more sinners in the, in, in the world. You follow that? And he says, no, that's kind of goofy. He says, no, absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroy, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. So he says here, and this is, this is kind of cool. He says, look, think about it normally. So soon as I rebuild something that I tore down, one way or another, I'm proving that what I was doing was bad, right? So if I have something here and I knock it down, by knocking it down, I'm saying there was something wrong with it, okay? If I build it back up, I'm saying it was, it was fine that I knocked it down. He's saying you can't win in that. He's saying you're showing that you messed up because no matter if you, did, if you, if you knock it down or you build it back up, in both ways you're admitting that you are indeed what the law is saying, and that is a sinner, so I, when you get into some of these analogies, I, I just want to make sure you understand that. They're, they're not as deep as, as we try to make them. He's basically saying, just think about it normally. So I'm going to say one more time, because I think that one got past people. So if you have something built, okay, and I kick it down, what I'm doing by knocking it down is I've already admitted, whether I say it verbally or not, that there had to be something wrong with it. You see that? Then he says, but now if it's already destroyed... And then I rebuild it back. I rebuild it back up again. Then I'm admitting the other way. I'm saying that I should have never torn it down. Well, now you're still under, now you're saying, now you're saying you can be justified by the law. Both ways, you're either admitting you're a sinner or you're going to be under a law which makes you a sinner. Okay, we'll we'll pray about that one. So, uh, so where am I? Everybody like so. Uh, can you? I want to make sure we, we get it. So let me, let me, Lord, how do I help? No, because, so, uh, how can I, does anybody got some insight to help the body? If I knocked it down, there was something wrong with it. If I 
See what I'm saying? The law piece. Because you were under law when you knocked it down. But if you knock it down, you come to Jesus, you're saying you're a sinner. If you, now, if you rebuild it back up, you're still saying there's something wrong with you. Because, because now you're putting yourself under law. All right, man. So, so talk to John about that afterwards, y'all. We can go to... So fundamental... Fundamental to Paul. I try, I try to give it a little college try, man. It didn't work out. Fundamental to Paul to describe one and the same death to sin and the law. Now... What I love about this, because this is the thing, we got to, you know, we talk about this grace thing. Now, hear this. Christianity is awesome, and it is so difficult. You know why? Because we live a life of faith. And you know, the, the crazy part about the life of faith we live is that Jesus gives us, he gives us the audacity to say that we are free in the midst of the not yet. So he's asking you and me, in the midst of all of our weird thoughts, the things we want to do that we don't tell nobody, the things that we do do that we don't want people to know, he's saying, and you're still holy and perfect. And we, and you know what, it's hard for us to believe that for 50 and 60 years. You know, the first week at youth camp, when it's not coming out your nose and you're crying, it's great. But you continue on and you go, really? As foul as I am, I'm really holy and perfect? I know what I'm thinking. I know what I want to do sometimes. Really? God has made me his child? So his point, I just want to make something clear. Here's, here's what the Bible is teaching, and then I want to talk about this pragmatically what that looks like. The Bible is saying... That when Paul talks about this, hear this, that it's almost like sin and law. God, he uses them interchangeably because he's saying that we died to them both. That we died to them both, okay? Now, so that means that sin doesn't have dominion over you because uh, we are not under law, okay? The law exposed sin. We're no longer under law. Sin has been defeated. The law has been defeated. Um, it reminds me of, you know, so think about it. You, you're, driving some, you're driving down the street. Why do you know that it's wrong to speed? Because of a speed limit. If there was no speed limits, then there would be no metric to know if you are committing a crime, if you're doing something wrong. What the law does is that it puts a stamp on things and says, now, you know in your heart that was foul, but I'm going to let you know it's foul because, boom, if you do this, you're wrong. That's what laws do, right? That's why we all like, oh, huh, because, you know, we all be trying to speed and stuff. But so that's what the law does. Well, what, what God is saying is that we die, that, that what, what Jesus did is that he, um, and I'm trying to figure out how to, how to say this, he exhausted the penalty of sin on himself. Let's continue on. Let me, let me, let me, let me. It says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Jesus does on the cross, family, is that he literally exhausted all of the penalty that we were supposed to take because of sin. He, he put it all on himself for those who would know and love God. He said, I'm going to take all of that on you. And I'm just thinking about, like, what, can, what is an analogy? I, I can't even think of something because they all pale in comparison to what Jesus did. I mean, I think about those commercials where you have, like, those, you have all these clothes and stuff, you know, and, and you have this big old fluffy bag, and you can put the vacuum in, and it sucks it up, and it becomes like a little pancake. You ever seen those? You know what I'm saying? I mean, but you know what? That doesn't even define or help you describe what Jesus did because you still got something. 
although really small, you still have some matter there. And what Jesus does is he totally exhausts it all where there is nothing. All the sin, all the law that keeps you and me bound, God is saying to you and me, those who love Jesus, you are free because you have died through the law. Just like he's died through the law. Now, how does that happen? Because of what he's saying right here. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and, no, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus. The life I live, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. See, the thing is, God is saying that you and I, that we, and this is, this is where it gets crazy, that you and I actually, we, we are united with God in such a way, with Jesus in such a way, that when you say yes to Jesus, you are so united with him, and this is where the faith thing is crazy, that his experience becomes your experience. That literally he is saying that you and I have to believe that when he was, on a, when he was crucified, he's saying that you now, you have lived that through faith in Christ. This is not something, oh, you did that, Jesus, and I'll theoretically believe it. That's why faith is crazy and deep, because Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. See, see, I'm having you retell this story. He is saying here that I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. So, so in essence, the risen Christ, look, I love this here, a couple of things that's really cool. The risen Christ is the operative word. Right? It's the operative power in a new order, as sin was an old order. Right? Because now it's Christ who lives in a person. So it's, not, it's, like, it's like Jesus Jesus is saying, okay, here you are. It's not that God possesses you and now we're a bunch of Jesuses around here in the way of like historical Jesus, but in the way of character that is true. Jesus is saying that what he has done is that you, you die with him through the law. You are now born with him and we reign with him in such a way that now he, he's saying that I live through you. That basically now the person, the person who's be, who should be living in you is actually not your old sinful self, but Jesus sanctified person. That Jesus himself, not now you have your own personality, the way you do things, that's the way we bring honor and glory to God. Right? In our own volition and who we are, we get to honor the Lord. But he says, now you can do that because my character now lives in you. I, I live in you. You have died with me, and I live with you, and I live through you. Am I, is that what it says? He says, but look at this. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. You get that? It's not possession. Now, I, a lot of times we talk a lot about, because there's so much messed up theology about here of, of the supernatural realm. I want to pause, and I want us to understand something. At the same time that we are very clear about understanding the, um, the ways of the supernatural realm, understand that the supernatural realm exists. Okay? And that God, he does things in us and through us, and that God wants us, as we're growing in maturity, to be asking God to continue to reveal us and help us understand the discerning of the spirits and understand how to live in this not yet right now. Like, right, so he gives us the stuff in the future that we don't really see now 
into now. That's Jesus, the crucified Christ. And then he says, but the fullness of it, we don't get, we don't get to receive right now. So God wants us to, uh, to operate and understand how to live like that. But what you see here, when he says that Christ is the operative power, he's saying the new order, this new order that God has provided, where, where one day when he comes back, we're going to be fully no sin, there'll be, there'll be no, no fear, there'll be nothing. I mean, God will just simply reign. He's saying that that power lives in us right now through the Holy Spirit. And that we by faith, we by faith, by faith, moment by moment, can either yield to that reality or we can yield to the false reality of our old life. So the Bible is teaching, this is where we don't, we don't like to hear this, the Bible is teaching that no, you do not have to still be the old person you were. You don't, you're not, that's not who you are anymore. When you, when you and me choose to result to our sinful patterns, our sinful ways, it's not because the flesh is alive, it's because we're choosing to resource dead flesh. God is saying you are alive in Christ now and that Christ lives in you and through you. And that the life we live, he says, I live in this body. I'm still here. I'm still in a fallen world. But I live by faith in the Son of God. And look at what he does here. I love how a lot of times when we think of the gospel, we can think of the Father doing this stuff and then Jesus sort of complying. But look at the love of Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not that just the Father gave Jesus to us. Is that Jesus gave himself for us. I do not set aside the grace of God, for righteousness cannot be gained through the law. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Two ways to nullify grace. We've talked about grace week in and week out. Unmerited favor, meaning it's a gift that God has given you that we absolutely cannot pay for. Uh, we just receive it, and we live in light of that reality, and that is salvation, and that God has made us his people. Receiving it and going on under the law, you can you nullify grace. If you receive, you say, oh, I love Jesus, I want to be a Christian, I want to love God, and then you begin to live your life in this law-based mentality by not receiving and, and, and giving grace, but putting, putting people um, under shackles and putting yourself under shackles, you have just nullified the crucifixion and resurrection. Because the scriptures are saying that we don't, need, we don't live under law anymore. But you live under grace. We, we are free. We are free to have fun as believers. And it says, re- receiving it and going on to sin. So you have, you have these two sides. You have people who become Christians, are more of my bent, right? I'm kind of rigid in, my, in my, how I do things. I do my thing. And, man, I get caught up in, okay, I need to do this, I need to do this, and find my, find my identification in that. Wrong. And then there's all of us. We receive, we receive the beauty of grace, and you just think now I can really sin. You know, I got my fire insurance. I said yes to Jesus. I did the prayer. I still have a four law in my pocket. You know, now I'm free. The law doesn't have any hold on me. I can do whatever I want. And you know what? God just forgives. You have nullified grace. Grace does not do any of that. What grace does is provide the bubble in which for you to finally be holy. Grace allows you and me to finally be who we're created to be, and that is holy people who deeply love Jesus and live a life where Christ lives through us. That's what grace does. 
Nick, buddy. Uh, one and two, believe grace, experience grace. Because if you don't experience grace, you've nullified grace, so there's no salvation. Without grace, you, you, you can't be saved. You cannot experience Jesus. Man, I, my, picture this with me. Wouldn't it be cool, me and the guy were talking, um, I think it was Sammy and, and, and Joel and um, I'm sorry, it was uh, in, our, in our Matt group, it was um, Alex and our crew, and we were just saying, wouldn't it be cool to be a body where, <clears throat> and, and here's the thing, I'm telling you, being a Christian, um, I've been doing, serving in, in Christian leadership maybe 12 years now, and I tell you the one thing that I can tell you, the hardest thing for Christians to do is to give each other's grace. I tell you, if someone said, what's the, what's the craziest thing you've seen in the church? I would say, Christians can give grace to unbelievers way better than they can give grace to believers. We're so good at letting sinners be sinners. But man, we won't let our people be free. It's interesting, because we all want grace, but we don't want to give grace. We want to be grace recipients, but not dispensers. The Bible is saying that God has called us to be men and women who live freely and free others under the umbrella of holiness. What would it look like if you and me and we as a body build a culture, man, where people come in and they experience the holiness of God, they know that we're serious, we revere Jesus, we love Jesus, and we do it in such a freedom where people can be human. They can be in process. But the process, we're continually moving toward the Lord Jesus together. What would it look like? To be men and women who continually look in our hearts and say, Holy Spirit, I feel like I want to be judgmental right now, and there's no sin in this at all. Help me be able to begin to give grace. Oh, right now, you know what? I'm really struggling. Help me receive grace. Help me receive the body's love, the beauty of the gospel. Think about it. We're going um, to have a, a song. And I'm praying, guys, I'm telling y'all, here's, here's the thing. We've got good news and bad news, family. God, God is doing a lot in our body. I say good news and, and a challenge, not bad news. God is allowing people to hear the gospel. Guys, people are coming to Christ. People are wanting to be discipled. God is doing a lot. And, guys, we don't want to have an infrastructure and a culture where we begin to build rules or where we begin to have unbiblical grace. But we want to ask the Lord to allow each one of us to be, to be walking with Jesus in such a way that we individually and collectively as a covenant community are people who model biblical, holistic, Paul-defining grace. Where we can humbly submit when we need to submit and hold our teachings like this. And we can humbly rebuke when people are tripping and believe in doctrine of demons. That's his, um, that's his mode of operation. That's what we're seeing here. In Galatians chapter 2, he ends by saying, man, it's always about Jesus. In my life, I've, I've given it to the Lord. And now the I is actually Jesus. He lives through me. We're going to have tithe and offering right now, family.